I'll open up with prayer and we'll get started. We'll get this meeting started. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for being good and gracious to us. We thank you for your mercies. They're new every morning. And Lord, we do pray that as we look into your word, you'd help us to understand and have wisdom so that we may live lives that are pleasing to you. We, we pray for Bob for the sermon, that we would hear the things out of 1 Corinthians that we need to hear to persevere until that day you come for us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I want to remind everybody that we are left off in the book of Proverbs. And so we're going to be finishing up that PowerPoint. And then if I finish in time, we'll be doing a little bit of apologetics with Catholicism. I've actually got a couple of slides that have flowcharts on them that show the justification system of Roman Catholicism. And we'll be refuting that. But it, it shows you the details of what Roman Catholics believe. But I want to begin where we left off in this slide about how wisdom is beckoning in the section of Proverbs chapter 1, but the fool refuses to hear the word of the Lord. And what I did is on this slide is just a little review as I tied the idea of regeneracy. If you're unregenerate and you don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll not end up having wisdom that leads to salvation. And so that's where we saw that wisdom is something that God gives. And we saw that in Proverbs 1, 23 through 25. It said, Turn to my reproof. Behold, I will pour out my spirit on you. I will make my words known to you because I called and you refused. I stretched out my hand and no one paid attention and you neglected all my counsel and did not want my reproof. And so here I talked about, if you recall, the need for regeneration. Remember the promise in Deuteronomy chapter 30 God said that he would circumcise the heart of his people, which is synonymous with giving the spirit to his people so that they would believe and that they would obey. And what I'm claiming is that even in Proverbs, you have this idea that unless God performs and gives wisdom, people won't have it. That's what I was laying out for you. Now, we continued. I think we were just getting into this slide where we see this personification continue. Remember, wisdom is being personified. What's personification? It's where you have either some abstract concept or some other, uh, maybe an, uh, like a storm or something, but it's personified into being like a human being. In this case, wisdom is personified. And here, wisdom is laughing at the calamity of the fool Proverbs 1, 26 through 28, it says, I will also laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your dread comes. When your dread comes like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call on me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me. Now, I want you to notice here in verse 27, we have some similes in this personification. Notice... It says in verse 27, when your dread comes like a storm. So the dread isn't a storm, but the dread comes like a storm. Now, why would dread come upon those who refuse the wisdom of the Lord? Well, because they end up doing that which is immoral. They end up stealing and murdering. This whole section of Proverbs is designed to guard the youth. Will, better listen. <laughs> to guard the youth from doing that which is immoral and becoming the criminal. So instead of stealing and harming people made in the image of God, you are to work with your hands. So this section of Proverbs is designed to have people realize if they're going to join the criminal element, calamity will come upon them, what, like a storm? Or here, like a whirlwind. All right? Now, notice in verse 28, when the fool finally des desires to have wisdom, it's too late. It's going to be too late because calamity has come upon them. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And today is always the day to have the wisdom of God because we're not guaranteed tomorrow. I had mentioned a sad case in Brooklyn Center, I believe it was, where you had this kid who was engaged in criminal activity who ended up being shot by accident by the police. Well, if you don't commit the criminal activity, then you're not in jeopardy with fighting with the police, you see. Yeah, Brian. 
I was reading this over what we were going to do this morning, and then that radio show came on that yes. we had listened to. He was talking about wisdom. And it's interesting that on the other spectrum is you have a lot of people in the world who are wealthy through business, yes. athletics, uh, uh, movie stars, things like that. You would think that they would have, they believe they have everything there is to have. And yes. yet you always end up reading stories or hearing stories of, of these people who just spiral downward. They're into drugs. They're in here. Yeah. They, they're, they're, they're dead, yes. whatever the case may be. But it's all due because they don't, uh, have not been regenerated. Yes. And so here, that's a great point. They have all this money, but they're still unwise. So money doesn't bring wisdom either. It's only something that the Lord gives. So you can be poor and unwise, and you can be wealthy and unwise, right? Isn't there a saying, healthy, wealthy, and wise, early to bed, early to rise? Healthy, wealthy, and wise. <laughs> anyway, that's not in the Bible, but it just brought it to my mind. Yeah, but good point. That's a very good point. Yeah, Rich. Yeah, I know salvation is from the Lord, and I know that the Lord chooses us from before the foundation of the earth, so it's kind yes. of a moot point that I'm trying to make. But in this passage that we're reading in Proverbs, I mean, you stiff-arm the Lord and say, no, no, I don't want your counsel. I don't want your wisdom. I want nothing to do with you. And you do that for years and years and years. And then your fear cometh because, I don't know, the IRS shows up or something like that. And um, you're all worried, and you go to the Lord, and the Lord says, uh-uh, no, no, I extended my hand to you, and you would have none of it. So now, right. therefore, so my point being is this. I know that it's a popular thing in the evangelical church to think, hey, whenever, as long as you're alive, you can still receive Christ. And I yeah. know, again, that election stands. Yeah. But do you think the Lord just gets fed up with people that stiff-arm them, stiff them all these years and say, uh-uh, ain't going to happen, Buster. Yeah, you know, I, I want to be careful, Rich, too. I don't want to uh, assume that people who have, as you mentioned, stiff-armed God their whole life, that God can't regenerate them later in life. I think about the criminal on the cross. He's at the very last moments, and yet that very day he'd be with Christ on, in paradise because of his faith. And so the issue isn't that God can't regenerate. I think the point that uh, the, the Solomon is making in the Proverbs in, in particular is the idea that the longer a person goes without belief and without having the wisdom of God, they're going to suffer consequences. And once those consequences come upon them, it's really too late. It's um, the kid that I was mentioning who lived the life of a criminal up in Brooklyn Center. He's dead. because of his, and So that's the idea is calamity comes and destruction comes even in this life. Now, ultimately, the worst calamity is to be under the wrath of God. But to your point, Rich, God does harden hearts, and he allows people, we see that in Romans chapter 1, when someone has a hard heart, he enables them to, to have what they want. And that's part of the wrath that we see now. Remember it says the, the wrath right now is being revealed from heaven? What's interesting in Romans, when you unpack that, the wrath that you have now is the wrath of hardening, where people are handed over to their evil desires. You want to steal from banks? Steal from banks. You want to steal from your neighbor? He hands them over. You want to have sexual immorality? Have sexual immorality. That's the kind of judgment. But the actual wrath of God where people are put in the lake of fire, for example, that's something in the future. That's eschatological. That will come, but that's in the future. So that's one thing that Bob and I have been talking about is when we look at wrath, the wrath of God now is one of hardening where he hands people over. But remember, it says in Romans 2.5 that they're storing up wrath for the day of wrath, right? right? And so the idea, and Bob, remember, you remember um, that mentioned that whole idea of accruing interest on that. Yeah, that, that. It's, it's, the word can be used in that context. Yeah. Putting something in the bank at interest. Yes. So it's... Is you don't want interest accumulating on wrath. Right. <laughs> right. You want to get out of it now by turning to Christ. Yes. Right, good point. That's the time you don't want interest. Yeah, I think your that. response is very good. I mean, it's a very biblical, um, gospel-oriented response, and I appreciate it. Yeah. 
in the tribulation, I know that people are going to know that God is bringing these calamities on earth. Yeah. And they're going to see all these things, and they're going to refuse to repent. Yes. As a time of hardening. Yes. I wonder if there's an epoch or an epoch or a time period where God says, he just turns them over, you know, to Romans chapter 1 to a hard heart. And these people are just so hard that they, uh, they, they will not repent, even though they know it's God bringing on yeah. the tribulation. Yeah, well said. Um, the term reprobation, there's some terms in uh, Romans 1. One is a dokimazo. And um, the verb, Bob and I have talked about this before, dokimos is a term where you weigh something to determine if it's genuine or if it's false. And the idea I always have in my mind, I know this is anachronistic because this isn't what the biblical writers would think, but it's a good concept. Think in your mind when you hear the term a dokimos is the idea of a test tube determining if something is genuine or if it's false. Well, when God weighs humanity, he determines what's in their heart. Well, if he determines that you don't love him, you're rejected, and he hands you over to a heart that can't discern that which is genuine and that which is real. That's the reprobate state. Now, only God can reverse that. Only God can regenerate by the Spirit and bring, bring people to saving faith. That's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit. It's the Spirit that changes us. And that's what we see here. Now, one thing I want us to think about in Proverbs 1 is, first of all, turn your Bibles back. I just want to do a little review. Back to Proverbs 1, 17 through 19. Turn back to Proverbs 1, 17 through 19. Because I want you to see this concept all the way through Proverbs 1 of this idea that the criminal, those who have rejected the wisdom of God, they don't see the calamity that's coming upon them until it's too late. And we saw that back in Proverbs 1:17 through 19 with this very interesting analogy that Solomon uses. Notice in verse 17, Solomon says, it indeed, it is useless to spread the baited net in the sight of any bird, but they lie in wait for their own blood. They ambush their own lives. Notice verse 19, so are the ways of everyone who gains by violence. It takes away the life of its possessors. So do you remember that saying? Um, notice in verse 17, it says, it is useless to spread the baited net in the sight of any bird. There was a Hebrew scholar named Dwayne Garrett. By the way, I, I had his Hebrew grammar book when I was in seminary. He's a very good scholar. He said the better rendering of that is, quote, in the eyes of a bird, the net is strewn with grain for no reason. So the point of the analogy is that the bird sees the net and it sees the grain, but it can't make any connection between what it wants, the grain, and the net that's about to kill them. In the same way, those lacking wisdom don't see any connection between the illegal activity that they want, and the certain destruction that will come upon them. That's the idea. And so that's what we're seeing here in Proverbs 1. So what's the remedy to that? The remedy, if we put this together, is that the youth, has, they have to learn to work, to work with their hands, work with their minds, and do that which is pleasing in God's sight. Bob gave a message some years ago about the work ethic. And talk a little bit, if you wouldn't mind, Bob, about the work ethic that we see inherent in the Bible and how, yes, the thorns and the thistles make it more difficult, right. yet work is something that we are to engage in. Right. That, that's very, very true. Now, remember, in wisdom, we're talking about generalities. Yes. Not absolutes. That's right. Because some uh, people, you know, have all kinds of good things that happen, but they're not rich toward God. That's right. Like that's in right. Jesus' parable. And other people love God like Job and go through a lot of calamities. He suffered, right? But other than that, there is such a thing as a work ethic. And you hear about the Protestant work ethic. Yeah. But I years ago preached on the biblical work ethic. Yes. Okay. And uh, because of the fall, through the sweat of your brow, you'll gain food. Yeah. The ground wants to uh, grow thistles. You got to pull them out and plant something you can eat. And as a farmer, you know something well, of that. Well, I thought about something. I think, I'm glad you brought that up. One of my brothers, I have four younger brothers. A lot of you know Wayne, Yeah. who uh, is in the Twin Cities. He's a Christian, 
Yeah. The one between us, we don't see much. He's been in Arizona. Yep. Well, he was up to fish, and then he was telling stories about uh, stuff that happened when we were kids, and then Wayne was reminding me. I was not a very good teenager. Anybody want to be around? <laughs> and I was annoyed by my little brothers and the family. We'd go on this three-seated station wagon to go, and which was fine. But Wayne said, well, you were, it was a lot better when you stayed home. Oh. <laughs> I was the oldest, and I was annoyed by my little brothers. And when I turned 16, I said, Dad, let me, I'll run the whole farm. I'll do all the work. I'll do the chores. I'll do the cultivating. I actually did the neighbor's chores. But don't make me go on vacation with my brother. <laughs> and then Wayne said, well, it was better for us, too. Oh, that's great. But I'm thinking about the fact that I was kind of a, I don't know, not the nicest teenager anybody ever had to raise. Sure. But in a common grace, I didn't get uh, saved until I was 20 years old. Yeah. But just in a common grace sort of way, the tractor was like my hope, my wisdom. Yeah. And every time something really bad was going on or I was thinking wrong or I was angry or really, really awful, I remember just getting out on a tractor and just all day cultivating or whatever the time of the year, plowing, yeah. disking, yeah. mowing the, the, the oats for the soil bank program. And the day just flew by, and I wasn't bugging anybody. Yeah. I wasn't angry. I wasn't unhappy. Right. And things were better for me. Yeah. I just thought about that. And when my brothers were telling me that it wasn't that easy to be around me when I was a teenager. <laughs> and my mom told me that, too, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh. I know. <laughs> but <laughs> the point is, in my case, the work that was there on the farm that I could get lost in made life so much better. Yeah. And really helped get me through those teenage years. Yeah. And <clears throat> the tractor can't save you, but can make you a lot less annoying to everybody. Right, right. And just get out there and work. Yeah. And absolutely. I think it's really horrible that so many young people in our country have nothing to do. Yeah, that's right. And some people have suggested that children. Teenagers working is somehow abusive to them, that they'd be better off if they just did nothing. And it's crazy. Right, right. And, and you can, they'll never convince me of that. Yeah. Working is good. Working, even good, hard manual labor yeah. is good. I, one time I saw um, a humorous TV show where they were uh, having people take an aptitude test. Yeah. And then they would come back and say, well, we looked at everything you took, and the only thing we could see is manual labor. <laughs> Just to see how they react. And this guy goes, I don't like to work. <laughs> they were hoping it would come back artists. Or, but it was just a joke. Right. But I thought that's ironic because work is Absolutely. a blessing. It's a benefit. Yeah. It's something God gave us to do. Uh, and serving in a, in a very whatever way we can Absolutely. is good. And the idea that, well, let's just make it so nobody has to work yeah. is inviting chaos and destruction and horrible things. Well said, Bob. In fact, that's what we see in Second Thessalonians 3, the idleness. The, you know, there's that aphorism, idleness is the devil's playground. And you really see that laid out in Second Thessalonians chapter 3. If you read that chapter, the busybody, the one who has too much idle time and doesn't work, that's, that ends up leading to a lot of trouble. How many in here have noticed that a lot of the rioters are able to stay up later than you can because you have to go to work, and apparently they don't? <laughs> I've noticed that. And I remember, I thought to myself one day, I remember my grandpa was a bricklayer. He was up at 5 a.m. all the time with his own crew. I can't imagine him having time to go loot and pillage until 1 a.m. He'd say, well, I've got to go to work now in four hours, so I, you know... It's crazy, isn't it? But that's the problems that we're seeing in our society. And so, as Bob talked about in his sermon some years ago, the, the Protestant work ethic is something that is biblical. In fact, turn your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians 3.10. Turn your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians 3.10. 
And Will, this is a passage I've talked to you about, so even though you don't have your Bible there. Bam. You can look on with Steve. 2 Thessalonians 3.10. And again, this is a Bob has uh, talked about this in his message when he's talking about the Protestant work ethic. This is a message that Paul is giving to those who are busybodies and creating trouble because they have too much idle time. 2 Thessalonians 3.10, he says, For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. Now, to me, that is the most neglected passage in a lot of the inner cities. And why do I say that? Because you have a lot of Marxism being taught where the government will take care of you from cradle to grave. But this passage isn't being taught. And one of the difficulties that people often say, well, you know, work is difficult. I don't like my boss. I don't like the fact that my back aches after I do all the hard work. Yes, work is difficult, and it has been, in some sense, made much more difficult because of the fall. That's where we see the thorns and the thistles growing. But what I want to assure you is that in the millennial kingdom, the joy of work is going to be restored where the thorns and the thistles will be removed. And we'll look at some passages that promise that. But, Nancy, first you. Well, just real quick, it's even worse than that because they are getting paid yes. to loot and burn down our cities. And Reba brought up a good point. What did you say? Yeah, and then the celebrities are bailing them out. So That's it's even worse point. than what we're talking about. That's a great point. And so instead of being paid to work, they're being paid to, to loot. And that's, very, and that's lawlessness. That's the idea that yeah. you end up spending money. You have a government that's pagan now, that's so pagan that they actually pay people to do illegal and immoral, immoral activities. And then if you would try to thwart their activities, then you're the one who's arrested. <laughs> I, I see it too, and you're, you're absolutely right. So it's even worse than that. Yeah, uh, Dan. Um, I was just going to say too, uh, in, in the business environment, it's like the government has... I, you know, like many here probably agree that this is a Marxist government that we have right now, and they're they're paying people to stay at home and giving the the stimulus checks and all that kind of stuff. And that's it may sound good, but it's really really destroying the um, Western, you know, the capitalistic system. And that's exactly. I think that's their intent is to destroy it so that they can you know reset it and, and do something uh, Marxist communist wise. And uh, right. so it's. So I'm not a big fan of the stimulus checks and things exactly. like that. So. Karl Marx could not have survived unless he had the paychecks coming from Engel's father, his friend's father, and his own father. He never worked. I remember one of his children starved to death, and he got $500, whatever it was, Deutschmarks. I don't know what they were at the time in Germany. But instead of taking the money and supporting his dying infant, he went on a drinking binge in Paris. The guy smelled, he had boils, his kids committed suicide. Um, he never worked a day in his life. He wasn't likable. Only six people showed up at his funeral. This is not a likable guy. And yet the, the head of BLM says, well, we're trained Marxists. Um, it, it's shocking. And it just shows, though, that when people hate Christ, they'll, they'll, people are religious. They'll have any other religion, but they won't bow the knee to Christ and, uh, and his wisdom. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Brian. The late, great uh, Rush Limbaugh used to tell yeah. uh, the true story of the pilgrims uh, on uh, Thanksgiving Eve every year. And uh, it's a, a story that the left never wants you to know. And that's how they started out as a, as a communal type society. And it got to the point where nobody, only a handful of people were working. Everybody else was laying around doing, ever, doing nothing, waiting starving. for the other people to right. work. And then finally they uh, decided to give each person X amount of land, do whatever you want. That started trade in the beginning of the uh, capitalism in America. Yeah, that's right. I, I've heard that very program. Very well said. Well, I want to show you in the millennial kingdom the great promises that one day the thorns and the thistles will be lifted. And so work, maybe you're at work and the boss isn't that enjoyable. Or you have very difficult, some workplaces are difficult to work in. That difficulty, a lot of it is going to be removed in the millennial kingdom. Yeah, Carly. Well, the Bible says whatever you do, work for, not for men. So we're working for God, not for men. Right, we're working for God ultimately. Yeah, everything we do is to glorify Him. Absolutely, that's how we should view it. 
working directly for him, Carly. That's absolutely right. Well, turn your Bibles to Jeremiah 31, verse 12. I want to talk a little bit about what work will be like in the millennial kingdom. Now, as you're reading this, these are promises that are giving to, given to Israel in the millennial kingdom. But I want you to realize that because of faith in Jesus Christ, you and I have been grafted into their promises. So these are promises that are ours as well. Jeremiah 31, 12. Hope you've turned there. Remember, Jeremiah 31, 31 is that great promise where God is going to pour out his spirit. Jeremiah 31, 12 it says, they will come and shout for joy on the height of Zion, and they will be radiant over the bounty of the Lord, over the grain and the new wine and the oil, and over the young of the flock and the herd, and their life will be like a watered garden, and they will never languish again. Does everyone see that term languish? Da'av in Hebrew. Da'av is languish. And da'av means to languish or have mental pain because of the difficulties of life. I remember um, years ago when I was an airline pilot, the airline industry was a lot different back then. They, it was almost like they were doing you a favor by you flying for them. And um, I remember a lot of times I'd be up at 2.30 in the morning, and it was difficult um, flying 14-hour days, thunderstorms, bad weather. I remember oftentimes just putting my head on the pillow, and I'd fall immediately asleep I'd be out for eight hours, wake up, and didn't know where I was. I was in some hotel. But I just never forget how difficult work seemed to be. And I remember at that time, I was learning eschatology, and I just dreamed of the day where we wouldn't have, you know, rye mice that was accumulating an inch a, a minute, it seemed, on the edge of our wings, you know? I just looked for the day where the, the thorns and the thistles were removed. And maybe some of you are like that today. The work has become very difficult. What you need to know is that in the millennial kingdom, you will still work for the Lord. But as you know, the Lord's a pretty good boss. And you will no longer languish uh, anymore. No longer will you have and have despair. The other despair, I think, that comes is you look at your paycheck after the government takes so much of it. That also brings despair, doesn't it? Why? Because we have a leadership in a fallen world that doesn't have biblical wisdom. But when the Lord reigns, and he is the king of the earth, and the, the nations will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks, think about the prosperity. And in fact, we'll talk more about the prosperity. Turn your Bibles to uh, Amos 9. Amos 9, 13 through 14. This is a great passage about the prosperity that we're going to head for when Jesus Christ is the one who reigns over the earth. And he'll be reigning from Jerusalem. That will be his headquarters. Amos 9, 13 through 14. And again, these are promises to Israel, but through faith in Christ, we've been grafted into those promises. Amos 9, 13 through 14. The Lord promises, he says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman will overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes him, the treader of grapes who sows seed. I must have a typo there. What... It is it? And the reader of grapes him. Treader of grapes him. Oh, him who sows. I gotcha. I gotcha. And the treader of grapes him who sows seed. Now, hold, hold, stop right there. Sorry, I just misread that. What's the issue there? The issue is that you're going to have the planting and the harvest overlap because there's so much fruit, so much abundance that by the time it comes to planting again, they're still not done with the harvest. That's the, kind of, that's the kind of prosperity that's going to be on the earth when the Lord reigns. And so that's the way the figure of speech that's being used. The harvest and the planting are going to overlap. There's such great prosperity. Notice it says, when the mountains will drip sweet wine and all the hills will be dissolved. Also, I will restore the captivity of my people Israel and they will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will also plant vineyards and drink their wine and make gardens and eat their fruit. So there's going to be great prosperity. Why? Because in Isaiah 9, 6, do you remember the sun that's going to be reigning over the world is the one whose government will be upon his shoulders, and he has all wisdom. In fact, he's called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. He's going to be the one that rules. And so all of a sudden, work isn't going to be so bad. 
You're not going to have... The one thing that really galls me, I don't know about you, sorry, this is not biblical, but I don't like stickers. I hate purchasing stickers and having to put them on everything. I've got stickers on boats, stickers on trailers, stickers on cars. Hopefully, in the millennial kingdom, there'll be no more stickers, all right? Because I'm bad at putting stickers, and I always forget, and I'm always in trouble with something. But anyway, I don't mind spending the money. I just don't want to put on stickers, right? All right, Isaiah 65, 21 through 25. Turn there. This is a great passage. Listen to what it will be like in the great millennial kingdom, and work will no longer be thwarted by thorn and thistle. Isaiah 65, 21 through 25. And by the way, aren't these promises magnificent? All the way from the Old Testament, God was promising what it would be like in Messiah's kingdom. How exciting is that? And all of these things await a final fulfillment when Jesus Christ returns. Isaiah 65, 21 through 25. Notice in verse 21, it says, they will build houses and inhabit them. They will also plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They will not build and another inhabit. So in other words, they're not going to be ever taken over by enemies. They will not plant another eat. For as the lifetime of a tree, so will be the days of my people. And my chosen ones will wear out the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain. Stop there. They will not labor in vain. I think today so many people despair of work because truth be told, they feel that they're laboring in vain. And as the society becomes more Marxist, you feel that more and more, don't you? Yeah. I'm sorry, Norm. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> when I think of this prosperity in the millennial kingdom and so forth, we must have to have a or people would have to have a changed heart at that time in order to deal with prosperity. You know, we yeah. think in our time during the Depression, yes. people really struggled. But the greatest generation came out of that because of what they went through. Yeah. And then they turned it over to the baby boomers. Yeah. And it was very prosperous, and they just went off the rails the wrong way. So. Yeah, no, that's well said. There's got to be something changed in the heart in order to deal with prosperity. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, Norm, as you say that, I was thinking, you know, in the millennial kingdom, we will be in our glorified state. We'll be in our resurrected bodies. And so we will be like him in the sense that we will no longer sin. And so we will have minds that can handle prosperity. And you're right. Prosperity isn't always easy, especially for the unwise, right? So absolutely. We're going to actually in our glorified state be able to handle that kind of prosperity. That's a great point. And, uh, of course, there will be those who are unregenerate who will rebel at the end of the millennial kingdom. They may not, but the believers will, won't they? Yeah, well said. Good point. Yeah, Brian. Well, Jesus is going to be in charge. So if you have somebody that wants to resist and not do anything, there's going to be consequences, unlike there's no consequences today. Absolutely. In fact, remember in Zechariah 14, I'm thinking around, I think it's around verses 10 on, you see that one day all the nations will go up to worship the Lord and the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, why the Feast of Tabernacles? Well, the Feast of Tabernacles commemorates how the Lord dwelt with his people in the wilderness. Well, when he returns, he's fulfilling that feast. Remember, Passover has been fulfilled. Pentecost, in a real sense, has been fulfilled, the sending out of the Spirit. But the Feast of Tabernacles has yet to be fulfilled by Christ, in a sense. You might say, well, he dwells with us permanently in the Holy Spirit, and that's true. But one day he's going to dwell with us in person. And when he does so, it says in Zechariah 14, all of the nations will be forced to go up and to worship the Lord. And if they don't, he won't send rain upon their land. Now, what's very interesting about that passage is I think it proves that during the millennial kingdom, we're going to have a mixed nature of people that will live in that time. Why do I say that? In other words, what I'm claiming is you'll have believers and unbelievers living on the same earth. Well, the reason why is because all believers will want to go up to worship the Lord. We want to. If you're living in Argentina and you're a believer in the millennial kingdom, you want to go meet the Lord and and worship him. So it's the unregenerate that are going to have to be forced to do so. And so that's proof, I think, of the millennial kingdom. Why? In the eternal states, are there any unregenerate outside of the lake of fire? No. 
all of the unregenerate are in the lake of fire, so they can't be forced to go worship the Lord in Mount Zion. Are you with me? So think about this. During the church age now, are we having nations being forced to go meet the Lord and, and he won't send rain upon their land if they don't? No, that's not happening now. But in the eternal states, the new heavens, new earth, new Jerusalem, all of the unregenerate, every unbeliever is in the lake of fire. So that proves there must be a millennial kingdom. There must be a time period in which the unregenerate and the, un and the believer live on the same planet. Yes, Brian. A bit of irony is the fact that after the millennial, the people that didn't want to worship God, they're going to bow the knee anyway. That's right. Every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Amen. That, that day will come. So either you bow your knee now, have the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection to come, and everlasting life, or you're going to bow your knee later. That's right, back to wisdom. Exactly right. And that's very fitting. In fact, let me finish this Isaiah 65 passage, and then we'll turn to the next slide, and we're going to see that very kind of wisdom necessary that Brian just mentioned. Notice right after it says, will not labor in vain. This is verse 23. It says, or bear children for calamity, for they are the offspring, literally the seed of those blessed by the Lord, and their seed with them, the descendants. It will also come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are speaking, I will hear. Notice verse 25, the restoration of the animal kingdom. The wolf and the lamb will graze together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox, and the dust will be the serpent's food. They will not do evil or harm in my holy mountain, says the Lord. Wow. Not even the animal kingdom will be at odds with one another anymore in that glorious kingdom. So what a day that will be. And so our work, the bottom line, will not be spoiled anymore by the thorns and the thistles. And so have that as part of your biblical wisdom to say, yeah, work is difficult now, but as Carly rightly said, we're doing it to the Lord. And one day when he returns, the beauty of work will be restored. It won't be thwarted by the thorns and the thistles and by, and by bad politicians taking so much of our paychecks, etc. The Lord will reign. Yeah, Paul. Just before you move on quickly, oh, I'm verse sorry. 28 there. Yeah. Uh, they will call upon me. I will not answer. They will seek me diligently. Well, <clears throat> yeah. I think Isaiah says that nobody seeks after him. So they will seek me on their terms, and they're not going right. to find him. It's like a blind man seeking. They can't find. Absolutely. So what they're really seeking is the resolution of their problems, but they didn't want the wisdom of the Lord. And you're absolutely right. We'll look at that, in fact, the next slide, I believe. Uh, we'll look at Psalm 14. That's where Paul borrows from in Romans 3, 10 through 11. There's none who seeks after him, no, not one. So the remedy to our not seeking after God and his wisdom is that he has to seek after us. That's the remedy. But again, the point that Solomon is making in Proverbs 1 is that when the calamity has already come, it's too late, it's too late to get the wisdom. It's like trying to find your life preserver after you've already drowned. Or as a criminal who's been already killed in the shootout with the police, you're already dead, it's too late to find the wisdom. That's the kind of calamity that the writer, I think, of um, Proverbs is suggesting. Yeah, it's, it's calamity primarily in this life, but it doesn't exclude the life to come as well. Yep. All right, so the reason for calamity, here we're going to see that, in red, notice in verse 29 through 30, it says, Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, they would not accept my counsel, they spurned all my reproof. Now, notice in red, here we see the antithesis, the opposite of Proverbs 1.7. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom. So, Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord meaning you're going to trust him and be concerned what he does to you. Remember, Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28, do not fear him who can destroy the body. Excuse me, fear he who can destroy the body, but he who can destroy both body and soul in hell. That's the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is always connected to faith. If you trust in the Lord, you fear him. If you reject the Lord and don't have faith, you fear man. You're going to fear one or the other. If you have trust in the Lord, you won't fear man. If you trust the Lord, you'll fear the Lord. 
That's the idea. So I want you to see that they don't have faith. That's the bottom line in verse 29. The fool doesn't believe and therefore they don't obey. Therefore they don't have wisdom. In fact, turn your Bibles now to Psalm 14. I want you to see the Psalm 14, 1 through 3 connection to the fool who says in his heart that there is no God. Practical atheism. Psalm 14, 1 through 3. Turn your Bibles there. Psalm 14, 1 through 3. Notice the fool here. Psalm 14, 1 through 3, it says, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. Now stop there for just a moment. Excuse me. Yeah, sorry. Thank you. Notice in there where it says... Abominable. Yeah, did I talk about my... uh, Yeah. Notice where it says, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. That's atheism right there. That's atheism. There is no God. Now, interestingly, ultimately atheism is foolish because the evidence for a creator is so overwhelming. Even the heavens declare the glory of God. Um, I've sat down with people before. By the way, when I was an airline pilot, I had a lot of opportunity to do this, where you can prove the existence of God because when it comes to the beginning of the universe, there's only four possibilities. And this is something I learned from an R.C. Sproul book years ago called Not a Chance. If there's a book that you want to have in your library to pass out to your kids or grandkids, it's R.C. Sproul's book, Not a Chance. It's a heavy read, but it's worth listening to. There's four possibilities for the beginning of the universe, and any scenario you will ever come up with will fall within one of these four categories. Number one, everything is an illusion, that nothing really exists, that everything that we see is just an illusion. You and I are an illusion. Well, that's been refuted by Rene Descartes. Rene Descartes was the famous philosopher who said, I think, therefore I am. Now, what was Rene, Rene Descartes actually doing? See, we often think that Rene Descartes was attacking Christianity, but he actually backs up our theistic worldview. What Rene Descartes was doing is he started on a process of doubting. He doubted everything. He doubted his own existence because he wanted something that was firm a foundation of knowledge that he could stand on and say, I know this is true, therefore I can know other things. But when he started doubting everything, he realized when he was doubting, he was doing something. Doubting is thinking. And he realized, well, if doubting is thinking and thinking is doing something, well, nothing can't do something. Nothing can't think. Nothing can doubt. That's why he had that famous aphorism, I think, therefore I am. So he proved his own existence. And because he existed he knew that other things existed as well. And therefore, the universe is not just an illusion. The second possibility is that the universe created itself. Now, what's the problem with the universe creating itself? Well, it's an absurdity. Because the universe would have to not exist and at the same time exist to put itself into existence. That's a violation of the law of non-contradiction. You can't not exist and at the same time exist to put yourself into existence. It's an absurdity. By the way, I've even heard Christians poo-poo the laws of logic. We shouldn't because we use them all the time. God is the one who made them. Aristotle just discovered them. Let me say that again. The laws of logic exist. God created them. It was just Aristotle who who discovered them. God created the laws of logic. So when I go out the door today, the reason I go out the door and not the wall is I use the law of non-contradiction. Right? I distinguish between categories. All right? Yeah, Bob. Were you there when I, you were there when I debated Doug Padgett? Yes. I brought that up. Yeah. Do you remember his rebuttal to me? No, I don't remember. He said radio waves go through the wall. And then he went on something else. Right. And I was, of course, he had the mic. I was, well. (laughs) That's different. But see, they changed categories. That's right. And they confused everybody. Because he wanted to escape the law of non-contradiction. That's right. And claim everything, or whatever his claim was. But that, in the same way, in the same relationship, but he just switched categories. That's right. So radio wave. I didn't say radio waves don't go through wall. <laughs> right. I said people don't. Yeah. And then he's off. So be careful. People will try to confuse you. That's right. That's a ca- classic uh, case of a red herring. Try to distract from the real issue. Yes. So... Think of the laws of logic, the law of identity, the law of non-contradiction, the law of excluded middle. These are laws that are like a police officer of our mind. 
If you violate one of them, that police officer should say, don't go there. You've made an error. So anyone who says that the universe cannot exist and then simultaneously exist to put itself into existence, they've become absurd. So now you've gotten rid of two of the four options. The third option for the creation of the universe or its existence is that the universe has always existed. Now what's the problem with that? Bob talked about this not long ago, the law of entropy, the second law of thermodynamics would disprove that. The second law of thermodynamics says that all energy in a closed system is going from a higher organized state to a lesser organized state. In other words, it's trending towards decay, meaning one day the sun will burn out and all of the stars. Well, how can you have an infinite lifespan of a universe with a finite supply of usable energy? It doesn't work. And so the second law of thermodynamics proves that the universe is not eternal. So we know the universe thus far is not just an illusion. We know that it couldn't self-create itself. And now we know that it's not eternal. Well, here's a very important saying that you want to have in your mind. Ex nihilo, nihil fit. Means out of nothing, nothing comes. If there ever was a time that there was nothing, you'd have nothing now. And so that's why the fourth possibility, the only possibility for the creation of the universe is that there's an eternal being outside of it who created all things. That's God. And whatever this being is, he has to be eternal. And so when it says the fool has said in his heart, there is no God, it's foolish not just morally, but also rationally. And the ultimate reason the people want to say that there is no God, as Jesus said in John 3, 19, is because when the light came into the world, men love their deeds of darkness rather than the light. They don't like the fact that there's a God who holds them accountable. So that's why it's so foolish to deny the existence of God. But notice it goes on to say that there's no one who does good at the end of that verse. Then verse 2 of Psalm 14, it says, The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. Verse 3, listen to this indictment of all of humanity. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. There's none who seek after God. There's not one who does good. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 3. That's where he's borrowing from. So this shows us that the only way that any of us can have wisdom is by faith in the Lord. And the only way that we're going to have faith is that the Lord would be gracious and give it. Because none end up seeking after him. But again, the point of the Proverbs here is that there comes to a point where God hands people over to the natural consequences of their own vices. Notice verse 31 through 33. We'll finish the section here. It says, So they shall eat the fruit of their own way and be satiated with their own devices. Let me just stop there in verse 31. Notice the term satiated. Does everyone see that? The term satiated there comes from savah in Hebrew. And it means to be satisfied. In fact, sometimes it's used in texts that have to do with propitiation. The idea that God may be satisfied with a payment. Well, here the fool is satisfied with their own immoral behavior. You see, it's not only that they do the immoral behavior and then blush, they start to boast in it. That's a hard heart. If you ever look at really hardened criminals, they no longer blush at their evil, they boast in it. They're satisfied in it. That's how perverse the heart is about this fool in Proverbs 131. Notice verse 32. Here's the explanatory purpose clause, what happened to them. It says, for the waywardness of the naive will kill them and the complacency of fools will destroy them. Stop there. Remember back in Proverbs 117 through 19, remember the net was spread, but the bird failed to see the connection between the net and the seed. The bird just wants the seed, but it doesn't see that the net's going to kill it. In the same way, the criminal doesn't see the connection between their deeds and the fact that they're, they're going to destroy them. That's the idea. Now, verse 33, but he who listens, this is the contrast, he who listens to me shall live securely and will be at ease from the dread of evil. Now, again, as Bob mentioned earlier, these are general promises. Do we know of righteous people like Job who live godly lives and still suffered? Oh, yes. But the general principle is, if you live a godly life, life will go better for you. 
That's the general principle in this world. That's the idea. So, dear ones, the big contrast that we're seeing here in Proverbs 1 is the way of the fool is the way of the criminal. The youth have to take heart, or excuse me, take heed, and realize that the way of the criminal leads to destruction and to build a work ethic, knowing that work is from God, it's good, it's noble, that idleness really is the devil's playground, and that one day, even if work is difficult here and now, one day in the future kingdom, when the Messiah reigns, it's going to be restored. The love of working for the Lord, the rewards that we will have, all of those things will be restored. And so the wise is able to see that and to toil in difficulty even here and now. Okay, so with that, does anybody have any questions? I'm going to go on to, I don't want to cut anybody off. Yeah, Brian. On your uh, four points of uh, the possibilities from R.C. Sproul, yeah. the, the third point that you made, the eternal past, eternal future. Yeah, the, yep, the universe is, cannot be eternal. Yeah, yep. right. Yep. The, um, I recently saw a documentary where they were saying that the general consensus now within the scientific world, astrophysicists and, and all of this, is that they believe that there was a beginning. And, and now the argument amongst those people is what caused the beginning. Yes, well said. And that's why Big Bang cosmology, if they get into cosmological arguments, that actually supports our, our claims because it shows that there was a beginning. How many ever in here have ever heard of Robert Jastrow? Robert Jastrow was head of NASA Goddard Space Institute, and I believe it was the 50s and 60s. But he um, wrote a book called God and the Astronomers, and he has this great line. It's, it's actually poetic. Now, remember, this is a brilliant scientist, and he talks about the uh, scientists scaling this huge cliff. And he says, finally, they scale over the final, the final wall of the cliff. They get to the very top, and they're greeted by a band of theologians that have always been there. Talking about these scientists scaling the cliffs of knowledge. And they get up there, and there's theologians who say, yeah, God has existed. He came to that conclusion from understanding the laws of physics. Jastrow was a theist. Now, I'm not claiming he was a believer in Christ. I don't know. But he was a theist. He believed that there had to be a God. So if uh, Robert Jastrow, the head of NASA's Goddard Space Institute, was a theist based on scientific evidence, you can... You can bet that the evidence is on our side. Let's leave it at that. Hey, Will, would you mind handing these out? Oh, I'm sorry, Paul. Yeah, sure. I just want to make a quick comment before we move on to very important what you're about to say uh, <clears throat> about uh, how God created rationality and uh, Aristotle just discovered it. Yeah. Uh, as we open Scripture and Scripture informs us and instructs us, uh, what we're practicing here is uh, faith-informed rationality yeah. that we can actually say it out but we need to be informed first. Amen. Amen. Well said. Yeah, you know, so many times, um, Paul, the Apostle Paul, for example, will use logic in his writings. I think of a passage that will actually, I'll be teaching at some point in 2 Thessalonians 2. He has a protasis and a potasis, an if and then a then. And Paul was very versed and he knew logic very well. He used it all the time. And we all do, even if we don't know the categories technically that come from Aristotle, we all use them. We stop at red lights and we go at green lights. We can distinguish between animals, dogs, and cats. And so we're using the laws of logic all the time, even if we're not aware of what they are. Yep, so well said. Yeah, so Will's just handing out another handout that we'll have. Remember, in between the Proverbs, I'm going to be doing some apologetics with Catholicism. Oh, I'm sorry. Barb, yes, go ahead. Um, you were talking about work ethic and some of the challenges that we face. Um, another thing I was thinking about is the workplace has become a little more complicated for Christians in that, like at my husband's work, they just added a new vice president of diversity and inclusion. Oh. And there's, um, you don't just do your job anymore. You have to take tests on uh, understanding your what they consider your original sins and yeah. in how to get along with others. And yeah. um, it makes me think of in Peter where it says at the time of Sodom and Gomorrah that Lot's 
righteous soul was vexed. Vexed, yes. And we don't necessarily, we don't know that much about Lot in the Old Testament being righteous necessarily, but it's interesting insight that Peter gives us that at a time that we're living in that feels like Sodom and Gomorrah, I think there is a lot of vexing of our souls in our day-to-day carrying out the work God has given us to do, and our fellowship is so sweet, and it seems like Sundays are farther and farther apart now (laughs) for us to be together, but that vexing of our grind, the daily grind is harder with that kind of affliction. Amen. Well said. That's that, well said. Yeah. That's interesting because I was looking at a verse this morning. I wanted to fire up my computer to yeah. find it. And I, and I was, because I was thinking of the same verse and I looked it up this morning. Thank you. Lord. And what is the promise though? The Lord knows how to rescue the godly. Is that what it says? Yeah. Amen. Amen. And uh, I'm thinking about the Lord's Prayer. Yeah. Isn't the Lord's Prayer a prayer for the return of Christ? That's right. Amen. How did did God rescue Lot and Noah? Well, by judgment, by, you know, and so we're praying for the return of Christ, and we're praying for forgiveness of our sins, the Lord's Prayer, and agreeing with God's intent, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as in heaven, which is prayer for the return of Christ, and that the judgment would come that he promised, but in the meantime, that he keeps us. And so it says there that he knows how to keep us. And we know the means he keeps us is the means of grace. So, Barb, I was just looking at that same verse before I came to church. Wow. Yeah, the vexed is, and we are vexed, aren't we? We really do feel that way, and I, I agree. That's part of the uh, the vexation of this age is something that's going to be remedied in the millennial kingdom, and how sweet that will be. You know, Barbie, you bring up a good point too with Steve's new boss of diversity inclusion. I just want to mention this next week. I'm going to be actually not even covering this. I'm going to be t- covering a a doctrine that's caused some trouble in our own church, um, not directly to our church, but into a Bible study. It's called the Serpent Seed Doctrine. And the reason I want to raise this is because it ties into this idea of genetics. Uh, Steve's new boss, talking about diversity and inclusion, one thing that we have to realize is that the genetics of a human being does not matter before God. And we'll be talking about that next week. That's part of the thing that vexes your soul, Barb, is you know, as a Christian, that there's no slave nor free nor Jew nor Gentile nor male nor female, but all are one in Christ Jesus. And so you know the only genetics that ultimately mattered were Christ's genetics. So Christ's genetics mattered. Why? Because it was promised he'd come from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, and David. And according to Acts chapter 13, by promise, Jesus Christ came from David. His genetics mattered. I'll be proving that next week. No other human being's genetics matter. That's why Paul says in Romans 2, 20 through 29, a Jew is not one who was one outwardly. No, a Jew is one who was one inwardly. How could Paul say that if your genetics matter? No, genetics don't matter at all. And so your soul is vexed because you see a boss that to them, this diversity and inclusion czar in the workplace, that's their whole worldview. Your genetics matter, and you're defined to be a sinner or non-sinner based on your genetics. We're going to refute that idea next week. So... Um, So anyway, the serpent and the seed doctrine allows us to get into some of those issues. But real briefly, this is something we'll be working on over time. I just wanted to give you a flow chart that shows the system of justification to Roman Catholics. And you can see that we'll talk about the flow chart, but it's very convoluted. If this was the, the biblical view, it would be faith alone in Christ you're justified. <laughs> That'd be a very truncated view, okay? But what I'm going to be showing you is this convoluted system, and we're going to kind of take each one of these and define them. In other words, what are penance, and what kind of penance do they need, and what are venial sins versus mortal sins, and how do you cooperate with grace? So we'll kind of go piece by piece through this flow chart, but I want to begin with baptism, because in baptism, what I'll show you is in the Roman Catholic system, that is the instrumental cause of justification. Real quick, what's the instrumental cause of justification in the Bible? It's faith. Faith alone. 
In fact, we see a very clear passage that teaches us that in Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. The through there is a preposition of means, through faith. So the debate is what justifies us. Is it faith alone? Or is it any of these sacraments that one has to do? And we'll be showing you, no, it's faith alone. So I just wanted you to have this flow chart. And we'll be talking about this as we proceed in our Catholic apologetics. But again, next week we'll be talking about this doctrine that has infiltrated a Bible study that I think opens up some important issues called the serpent of the seed doctrine. We'll be discussing that next week. So that's what we'll be doing. But with that, let's close in prayer. Thanks, by the way. I love your comments, your questions, um, your ideas. It's really a blessing for me to show up. And like Barb said, these six days apart seem to go longer and longer now. It's so sweet to be with all of you. So I just want to say I love you. I know Bob does and all the elders, and it's just a blessing to be with each and every one of you this morning. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that we can look in to what you've had for us for wisdom, Lord, that you do bestow it upon those who trust in you, who have fear of the Lord, and it is the beginning of knowledge. I do pray now, Heavenly Father, for Bob as he preaches, that we would hear what he has to say, and not just be hearers, but doers of the word, that we would understand the scriptures, that we would live lives that are pleasing, and that we'd persevere into that day that you'd come and bring the glorious millennial kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.